Abolition. Abolition. Right Today. here in Florida, they plan to teach students that enslaved people benefited from slavery. They insult us in an attempt to gaslight us, in an attempt to divide and distract our nation with unnecessary debates. And now they attempt to legitimize these unnecessary debates with a proposal that most recently came in of a politically motivated round table. Well, I'm here in Florida, and I will tell you there is no round table, no lecture, no invitation we will accept to debate an undeniable fact. There were no redeeming qualities of slavery. I swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. America is slowly dying of a self-inflicted wound from a weapon that we're supplying. The past sees the hatred that race in our bloodstream. We can't agree to disagree on the most basic of things. What's a man? What's a woman? What's the shape of the earth? When does human life begin? A conception or during birth? Meanwhile, the project is more violent and the Democratic Party stays silent. That's poverty pimping. That's when politics are poverty driven and they pander the poor communities to get moral impunity. Capitalism is a black man's Hell, but Marxism comes from Europe as well. It's not African. So pick a side to collect from. We run away from one slave master into the arms of the next one. And every two to four years, they pump fear. And we auction off our vote in exchange for some false hope. Listen, it's that blatant. Enslave us through taxation. Send money to Ukraine and you paying at the gas station. Because this administration had plans for the inflation. Natural gas is the actual task. Check the pipeline. Now they want to fight crime. We tools in the plot. They wouldn't Talking gun reform back when Boo Boo got shot. Drug addiction was not a disease when Nunu had rocks. Now they change and readjust words because meth is in the suburbs. In the 90s, Biden locked up our people for coke. Now he's using taxpayer dollars to buy pipes so niggas can smoke. You don't see the contradiction? Are you too busy double tap dancing to pay attention? This is legislative lynching, economic Jim Crow. They see this violence and spirits to keep us spiritually poor. Is this conspiracy? No, far beyond the music. That crime bill defines still how juveniles are prosecuted we prostitute ourselves for the wealthy it's not healthy fly across country for protests just to get a selfie meanwhile the news outlets exploited and traditional black values get voided it happens considerably attack the fam crack the validity keep the fathers unemployed destroy black masculinity keep the mothers out the house let the boys run willingly then let the streets raise them and haze them to be brazen it's basically by design we reside in public housing throw us a couple crumbs and we succumb to those surroundings, perpetuated by educators and pastors, Stockholm Syndrome, we fell in love with our own captors, mass shooters get captured and taken into custody, if black assailants make detainment truly it's a luxury, enough to see that there's a power imbalance, cowards accept the malice and challenge it ever was valid, adjust your palate, they say nothing is insurmountable, cause everybody's sensitive and nobody's accountable, everybody's sensitive cause nobody's infallible, never let it disparage you, welcome to America. Abolition. 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 You just heard Vice President Harris uh, talking about how there is no redeeming qualities of slavery 
And no, we are not going to debate the issue. That was followed by Brother Locksmith with his single, America. Uh, here in the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, Locksmith is one of our favorites out there who really puts out some good content and isn't just some cookie-cutter, murder, death, kill, materialism, women of bitches, and all of that stuff. He really drops the knowledge. Um, my name is Max Parthas. Yusuf will not be joining us tonight as he is by his father's bedside and his father is expected to pass away. Please keep his family in your prayers in this crucial moment. So last week, we dropped the history of King Cotton because apparently people have forgotten. This week, it's all about amplification of powerful voices and messages as we share media mic drop moments and devastating truth bombs. I want to give some shout-outs, first of all, to my granddaughter, Montana. Happy birthday, baby. And to my daughter, Alicia. Happy birthday to you, Alicia and Montana. Um, family's getting bigger and growing up, man. I also want to give a shout-out to All Streets, All People, ASAP, bringing in Black August with the Black August Movement Motivator, courtesy of the Ella Jo Baker Movement School. They gave me the honor of being the first speaker a five-day live stream event. The assignment was to set it off and set the bar to inspire and educate. Can I kick it? <laughs> yes, I can, and I did. Check out the archived videos on our page or visit their website at asapworldwide.org. It's been a hella busy week working with the ASNN and organizing and preparing the 15 states slated to amend their constitution in 24 and 25. We're also preparing for the anniversary of the Abolish Slavery National Network. It will be held in Denver, Colorado on August 25th through 27th. ASNN members and supporters from across the country will be gathering for a historic and epic weekend in the first state to abolish slavery from their constitution without exception since Rhode Island in 1854. If you're interested in attending the ASNN anniversary event, send an information request via email to info at abolishslavery.us. That's info at abolishslavery.us. Tonight now, <clears throat> for the first time in over four seasons, you'll be getting maximum impact poetry, which means I'll be joined by the better half of maximum impact poetry, a multi-published multi-recorded and multi-award winning spoken word artist, a slavery abolitionist and independent business owner, a direct descendant of Captain Paul Cuffey himself and the CFO of the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina. By way of Newark, New Jeru, via South Kakalaki, my wife and partner of over 30 years in life, art, and activism, Tribal Reign. Let me go ahead and bring her right in. Hey, Tribal, welcome to Abolition Today, today as a guest and co-host for the first time. Thank you very much. Actually, this might be, I think, the second time. As a guest and co-host? Yes. Well, I'm had to think, was that when Christopher Johnson was on during Poetry Month you talking about? Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> All right. Well, we just got you today. <laughs> just you and me, Maximum Impact Poetry. Uh, for those who don't know, that's what Tribal Rain and I are known as, Maximum Impact Poetry. 
uh, and that's what our album is called, uh, Maximum Impact Poetry Endgame. Uh, we have been doing this now for decades, uh, working with our communities and always trying to find ways to provide outlets for powerful voices like we'll be doing tonight. Right, Travel? Yes. Yes, we have. And good evening, everybody. Um, I remember one of our biggest uh, outlets was the Session Live. And uh, Tribal, in addition to helping to organize it and put it together every week, would cook uh, food for at least like 50, 60 people. And often <laughs> the homeless would come by to get their uh, monthly meal from Tribal Rain at the Session Live, which was hosted by me and Brother Spirit, or Henry uh, Arthur, as he is known. Um, some of your favorite times, I'm sure, was there too as well, right? Yes, it was, and I miss those days. Mm-hmm. I miss Did you gathering listen? every month. Did you listen to the opening track? Yes, I did. I thought that song was hot. I really did. <laughs> yeah, he was dropping some knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was. He was reading. Vice, Vice President Harris. She said it like it is Like they're trying to gaslight us on this issue And somehow trying to make it seem like Slavery was a good thing So you know all the enslavers Y'all can just step back and chill Take a deep breath because you're off the hook now You did some good things It's the usual whitewash job Yes it's the usual whitewash job The sad thing is If you sweep it under the rug it didn't happen It didn't happen It's sad that it's coming from somebody Who is supposed to be a presidential candidate so he's looking yeah. to run the whole country with this type of ideology that you know we are just whining and complaining after 400 years and none of this stuff is what we say it is uh and as long as they can find some one or two of their black friends to come and counter our argument That's everything it. is okay um That's I, did some, in that show. I did some digging travel and i found out that this uh panel that they had put together to approve uh, this curriculum in Florida consisted Florida. of a few Negro peans. <laughs> yes, you know it did. I, mean? I was just yeah. going to say that. <clears throat> we played the last program we were on live. We played one of them, uh, which was one of the representatives there who is also a, a priestess. And she mm-hmm. was screaming about how slavery, or thank God for slavery, because if not for slavery, she would be in Africa somewhere worshiping a tree. So that's the perspective the one had of slavery. And then the other one, uh, that, that was the black woman, and there's a white guy who was telling how telling there her. were 300,000 Irish slaves in America in America. 1625, which was completely untrue. But again, trying to soften it, say, look, it happened to us too. We had 300,000 Irish white people. 500,000 were killed and they enslaved mm-hmm. 300,000. Never happened. No such thing as that. There was indentured servitude, yes, uh, but that was not slavery, nor was it chattel slavery. Any thoughts? Well, you know, they have to lump us along. Gaslighting. That's what it is. Just yep. straight gaslighting. It's all our fault. And a lot of the stuff that. They... Go ahead. If they lump us all together, then they can say, see? It happened to them, too. So what are you whining for? What are you whining for? It's a damn shame. Um, Travel, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit, since we're going to be doing some truth, 
uh, bombs a day, and we're going to be doing some mic drops, which I'll be pulling up in a few minutes, uh, the first of the bunch. Um, tell me some of your favorite moments over these past years, most memorable things, because people may not realize it, but everywhere I've been working in this slavery abolition work, you were right there next to me, all over the country and all the media. Yes, meetings. I so, was. What has been some of your most memorable moments? Oh, that's a good one because there are so many. It's hard to pick just one. <laughs> uh, one of them was actually getting to California and meeting Jamelia Land for the first time. Uh, shout out the to Jamelia Land. Like, Ooh. <laughs> the two of you together are dynamo. Two peas yes. in a pod. You get, you get stuff done. In a hurry, too. (laughs) Yes, if you two walk in together, everybody just needs to sit down, pack up their books, (laughs) and get ready to fall in line. Mm -mm -mm. You know, I've been a truth for a long, long time, and there's been plenty of times that I've been censored. Um, Remember when we were in, uh, it was the Hour Revolution back in 2016, I think, Um, and they reached out to me and said, Max, we want you to speak, and we want you to break down how slavery is connected to the immigration system. So I did that, right? I, I put together this whole uh, research, uh, maybe about 10 pages of research together, and I used a lot of the media and traced the money uh, of what was happening between 2013 and 2017 as the prison industry was growing by leaps and bounds and expanding into the immigration system and how it was directly related to slavery. And then I get up there to talk. <laughs> you remember they shut me off? <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. They scheduled me to talk, but because I was going too deep, <laughs> they, wanted they don't me want to, you to, do to it. shut up. And, and what did they do after they told me to shut up? They brought in some white woman to talk who was not scheduled to talk. Like, you didn't have my time, but you found yes. time for the white woman. <laughs> It was crazy, man. That was uh, ridiculous. But it, that happens often to us. When you're yeah. spitting the truth, they want to get you off quick. They want to get you off quick, right, exactly. Because, yeah. you know, I'm not, neither one of us can say that we're Democrat or Republican, left or right. We're more uh, independent thinkers than that, you know. Yeah. And when we talk the truth about either party, they tend to not want to hear it. I was watching a video earlier with this guy from the Democratic Party was really reeling against the Republican Party about all that they've been doing over these years, but not a word about what the Democrats have done. No Joe Biden's crime bill, none of that Bill Clinton stuff, none of that Hillary Clinton content about, you know, super predators. He just skipped through all of that and blamed everything on the Republicans. And I'm like, you do realize that the Democrats invented chattel slavery, right? Like it was just them. There was no Republicans involved in the entire antebellum period. They didn't even come along until 1854, and the reason they came into being was to fight against slavery, to abolish slavery. And that was uh, people like Frederick Douglass, who were known as radical Republicans. So I guess that would be the best thing to describe where I'm at, like Frederick Douglass, a radical Republican who's all about ending slavery and giving freedom back to the people and freeing our people. Very Um, radical. (laughs) You're also like myself, 
the parent of incarcerated children. Uh, we lost a couple sons to the system for a total of over 34 years. Uh, tell me a little yes. bit about how that felt. Actually, it was, oh, wow, there are no words for it. Because we were living in South Carolina, and he was in prison in Jersey, and going back and forth every few months, and sometimes we weren't even sure we'd be able to see him, and they'd give us the runaround, or we'd find out that there had been a ruckus at the prison between him and the guards, and we weren't allowed in, and then... We were bamboozled. We were leaving money for him, and they were taking 75% of it. 75%. So and it then, was frustrating. Mm-hmm. And it was heartbreaking because there was nothing we could really do except continue to try and make the trip and hope that we'd be able to see him. Until they told us we couldn't do that anymore, remember? there was yes. When we went down to that one year, they said that they would no longer allow in-person visits. And they told us this after we drove down there. They no longer would allow in-person visits. From now on, we would have to pay $10 for 15-minute video conference. It was $15, yeah. Yeah, for for 10 minutes, right? I had to reverse. $15 And then we couldn't even do it that day. We had to schedule it a month in advance. Which That's was totally a, ridiculous. It's mind-blowing how they would exploit us and other parents like us all across the country to sell us the image of our children who they had kidnapped. <laughs> and I do believe they did that at the time when the guards had beaten him up so bad. Mm-hmm. We had gotten word from our other son that the guards had beaten them up really badly. Yeah, they beat them. They tortured them. Um, one was put in a solitary confinement for so long that he ended up with bed sores. Not to mention, mm-hmm. it probably broke his spirit quite a bit. Um, you know, and I remember one time when Justice called us um, on the phone saying that he was working in the bakery for, I think he said 18 cents an hour. And while he was working in the bakery, he gave Justin a Zeppelin that he had baked, one Zeppelin. And they were both in the same uh, facility. And the guards found out about it and told him he had a choice now. That was considered theft. And that they would either dock a month of his pay for working in the kitchen, or he could spend 30 days in the hole. Now, think about you yeah. only making 17 cents a friggin' hour, and they're going to dock a month of that because he gave his yep. brother a Zeppelin, a little pastry. Um, it's just amazing how we get treated it's like a donut in these facilities. Hole. Well, yeah, basically. And, you know, I have noticed that the opposition has been studying us to a very large degree. People like you and me and other all across the country in the black community and trying to duplicate what we do for their own benefits. Like, we have been consistently saying this is crimes against humanity. And what do you hear them say? Crimes against humanity about something completely unrelated. Like they did that during the COVID period, talking about how they felt like slaves 
because they were forced to stay inside during a pandemic, you know? Uh, and, stay inside in luxury. <laughs> and now um, they're even doing it, you see, with the Trump administration, how they're talking about this two-tiered system uh, and mm-hmm. how, you know, some people are getting treated fairly. But these rich white Republicans are not being treated fairly. It's a two-tiered system. It's the same thing with the woke concept. Like when we were growing up, woke meant keep your head out of swivel because Popo trying to capture you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Don't get into no troubles because the police will have no problem killing you or putting you into a prison. They want you in a prison. So stay woke. And now it's like woke means save the planet. Uh, You know? Like when did that happen? I, I don't I don't even know. Embrace but the trees. Yeah, it, embrace the trees. Uh, all of these different things that have nothing to do well, with yet, the origins of what that was. Save the animals. Save the animals, right? Yeah, I remember Peter compared uh, what we were going through, uh, compared what the animals deal with to what we went through during chattel slavery. That's how far they take it. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a, a first fact, clip I want us to listen to along with our audience is directly about that. It's where Representative Summer Lee, the Democrat out of uh, Pennsylvania, talks about mm-hmm. the two-tiered justice system. Um, and it's going to be um, – it's going to have the instrumental of Syl Johnson's is it because I'm black? I think you'll really enjoy this. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. Max Parth is here. Yusuf will not be in tonight, but I am joined by the iconic Tribal Range. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. I'd like Today. to address the way my Republican colleagues are attempting to co-opt the phrase two-tiered justice system to make it sound like Trump and his cronies are somehow the victims here, when the reality is that the term two-tiered system of justice is meant to refer to the very real system that exists in the United States and which affects black and brown folks, not powerful former presidents and their political allies. The real two-tiered system of justice is one in which, in 2021, according to the DOJ's Bureau of Justice Statistics, the imprisonment rate for black men aged 18 and 19 was 11.6 times the rate for white males. The real two-tiered justice system is one in which, in 2021, according to those same statistics, the imprisonment rate for Native American males aged 18 and 19 was 5.1 times the rate for white males. The two-tier justice system is one in which, according to a May 2018 Vera Evidence Brief, and I quote, black men comprise about 13% of the male population, but about 35% of those incarcerated. One in three black men born today can expect to be incarcerated in his lifetime, compared to one in six Latino men and one in 17 white men. The two-tiered justice system is one in which an analysis of nearly 100 million traffic stops across this country found that black drivers were about 20% more likely to be stopped than white drivers. My Republican colleagues seem to think that using criminal law as a weapon or a political tool is objectionable only when directed against someone who should be out of reach of the criminal system. Someone too rich, too powerful, or too white to be charged. But let's face it. That same system has been used as a weapon and a political tool against black people since the Emancipation Proclamation. These racial disparities are rooted in a two-tiered view on race. 
the belief that black people were inferior, that was created to justify the, ensla- the enslavement of black people, which has now evolved into, to include the belief that black people are more prone to criminality. During the decades of lynching that followed enslavement, white people defended the torture and murder of black people as necessary to protect property, families, and a way of life from black criminals. In 1980s, Nixon's war on crime evolved into Reagan's war on drugs, and we saw harsher and more frequent punishments and the start of mass incarceration. In both cases, it was black people who were targeted and suffered under those policies. There's a reason that crack cocaine, which carries a stereotype of being used by black people, was at one point punished far more harshly than powder cocaine. Prior to 2010, that ratio was 100 to 1, meaning someone convicted in a federal court of possessing crack cocaine will receive the same sentence as someone who possessed 100 times more powder cocaine. And I want to say that PA's extreme sentencing practices have overwhelmingly impacted people of color, but most specifically black people who make up less than 11% of the population in Pennsylvania, but more than 65% of those serving life without parole sentences and 58% of those serving non-life sentences of 20 years or longer. How many times have our elected officials and judges ran on the promise of a tough-on-crime approach? Even now, Republicans still tell that they are the party of law and order, while in the same breath claiming that Donald Trump should not uh, be prosecuted. Don't get it twisted. Republican efforts efforts to use the term two-tier justice is to distract from those who are truly the victims of a disparate treatment in our criminal justice system. And whether we say it out loud or not, we all know who those people are. I yield uh, the remainder of my time. And it's that's the reason that they're doing us like that. You know what? It is. I believe it's because we're black. Uh But hey, we can't stop now. We can't stop now. Got to keep on, keep on, keep on, keeping on. We got to keep on. That they hold us, hold us, hold us back. They're holding us back. Uh-huh. They're holding us back. I wonder. Sometimes I sit down, sit down, and I wonder. Abolition. You just heard Representative Summer Lee, Democrat out of Pennsylvania, talking about this new two-tiered justice system. And that was uh, mixed with, is it because I'm black, Syl Johnson. Tribal Rain? Wow. She was spitting truth and fire. Man, she was, it was just, ugh. One of those truth bombs. behind it Mm. by Syl was. Man. There's no words for it. Hopefully it touches everybody else like on, it touched keep us. Keep on, keep on. Fit. You know how many times we've been wanting to give up? <laughs> yeah. Like it just seems so overwhelming. Like you feel like you're literally fighting against the devil himself, the devil himself. and you're just this There's little ant. There's been a few times. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, we keep on keeping on. She said some things in there that was pretty amazing. Uh, The first thing is I want to make a correction uh, because a lot of people do this. They'll say black men make up or black people, black males make up 13 percent of the population, but only half of them are adult age. You know, they're not putting six year olds in prison. So it's really only like five or six percent of the whole population that is being treated this way where they make up 5 or 6% of the population in Pennsylvania, but they make up 60% of the death row, and they make up nearly 60% of people doing life or more. Uh, like, how is that even possible when you only represent 11% of the total population? And when they say 11%, they mean all black people in Pennsylvania, men, Thank women, you. and children, is only 11%. And yet black men make up 60% for death row and for um, life sentences and beyond. How do you feel about that, Charlie? How do you feel about that? That whole concept was designed to break up the black family home. It really was. You put the men in prison, the women have to go to work, and what's left with the kids? They're left home. And being left home on their own, they're bound to get into trouble, and then you got the kids going to jail, too. Yeah, so I, that, I think yeah. that's the whole plan all along. You take that many black men out of the community, and you've you got to expect it to have ripple effects um, yes. throughout the whole community. And I think they know that. Um, if it were animals, they would certainly know how it affected them. We took out... 50% of the male populations from these hippos, here's what's going to happen. But they act like they don't mm-hmm. know nothing when it comes to human beings. You know? It's just And then they try crazy. to say that black families more often than not, the men don't want to be around the children after they're born. That's because you took them away. Yes. And it's been, de- it's been debunked, this idea that black men don't uh, spend time with their children or part of their family and their children's lives. Um, that's just not the case at all. As a matter of fact, yes. studies have shown that black men are more likely to be a part of their children's lives than their counterparts, not less likely. <clears throat> but it is true, and we came up through it, seeing it happen left and right, where they were just taking men out of the community, leaving the women to take care of the kids, and often they yeah. would uh, put them on welfare, get, entice them to get on welfare where they would help them with houses and, and funding and basically be the daddy in place of the actual man. But the, when the men came out, they weren't allowed to be a part of the family then. They they couldn't live with their uh, uh, kids yeah. and, and their wives. Uh, they couldn't participate in their lives. Like It was just like they were trying to keep them completely away from them. And then even today, you see that. Go ahead, Robin. You want to say something? What was that movie that was going on with? um, Oh God, I want to say James Earl Jones and Diane, where she was Diane Carroll, where she was on welfare, and at that time when you were on welfare, they came into your home and inspected everything you had in your home at any time. You weren't allowed to have any men there. You weren't allowed to acquire any new items. 
They questioned everything you had in your home, including who the kids' fathers was. Hmm. Right now, here in South Carolina, for instance, if I remember the stats correctly, one in eight of every uh, man in their county jails are there for child support. And you remember uh, Brother Walter, was Walter Scott here in, was in Charleston? that got shot Mm -hmm. over child support by the policeman, who ended up going to prison for that, as a matter of fact. But that was like his third time. He was trying to pay for his child support, trying to take care of his child. And every time he got a job, he would get stopped and arrested by the police for child support. How are you going to pay child support if you're in a freaking jail? I don't understand how this is supposed to be helpful to the family by putting them in a jail. And then on the third time, he was just sick and tired of it. And he was kind of like me right now, bad legs, can't run. But he tried to shuffle away and got shot in the back eight times. Yeah. Judge, jury, and executioner over freaking child support for a man who that was trying right his there. best. Mm-hmm. And that's one in eight that cases right, right now. Uh, you know, I, we saw that there a lot are coming so up in Jersey. so many cases like that nowadays. So mm-hmm. many cases. It's open so, genocide is what it is. Yeah. Well, you ain't making no babies in jail, that's for sure. I, I always sure felt not. like it was a form like of population control, like we were being called to stay at a certain percentage. Like we're allowed mm-hmm. to go past this much of a percentage of the population, there's a problem. So we've got to be maintained called in order to stay at this X population of 13% or so. We've been at 13% since the 1860s, apparently, you know, while everybody else is growing around us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, I got a few uh, good things tonight lined up, uh, truth bombs and uh, mic drops. You just heard that one from yeah. Represent- Representative Summer Lee, uh, who told it like it is. Like, it's a, it's a shame that you're trying to co-opt this two-tier justice system we've been talking about for decades and decades and apply it to rich white men. Meanwhile, you don't care that it's happening to black people all across this country. Like, that's not a problem for you. But the moment it happens to you, it's a problem, and it's a two-tier justice system. Um, Man, sometimes I just want to pack up our bags, travel, and get the hell up out of Dodge. You know? I've been like thinking it. that a lot recently. <laughs> but there's nowhere to go that's safe. There's just nowhere in this world to go where it's safe. Uh, because this racism goes beyond America's board, borders, first of all. And the prison for profit using uh, inmates and the population citizens as fuel to generate these revenues has been adopted globally. Like, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of African nations we couldn't go to uh, to live because that's the case there and worse. Um, there's mm-hmm. European nations, same thing. Can't Certainly can't go to Australia. In Australia, the geo group runs the entire prison system across the whole country, you know? So, like, there's nowhere safe to go. The only thing we can depend on is God himself to protect us now. And we've that's had to it. do that a few times, haven't we? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> Mm. Uh, 
tell this story, if you don't mind, about what happened to us at Eastover. Um, first with the police uh, coming all the time with the headlights in our window, and then in that winter, oh yeah, where the house got burned down. Go ahead. Yeah, they would be parked outside our drive. We lived on a dead end street. They'd be parked in our driveway. Uh, and the minute you open the door, they drive a little bit slowly down the road. They would knock on our door and claim they heard, had um, domestic abuse calls <laughs> coming from our house. Domestic abuse calls. Mm-hmm. Then there was the time where we were all getting ready for the show, the radio show. Um, and we at that time we had a second level. And the building across from us on this dead-end street had been abandoned and deserted for over eight years. There was only our house and the house next to us. And no one was there. We happened Mm. to be getting ready for the show, and something told me to look out the window. I looked out the window, and the moment I looked out the window, the house blew up in flames. An abandoned house. Now, where we lived in Eastover is a one-light town. There are no stores, no street lights, no banks. There was one fire department, and it was literally on the corner. Not even two minutes away from us, on right. the corner. It took the fire department and the police an hour an hour to get around the corner. So that you know, I, rem- I remember things a little bit differently. Um, not much, but there's a little bit, some details you might not recall. Uh, I was doing new abolitionist radio at the time, which I had done for like seven years. So I- I've been doing this type of program for over a decade now. Yeah. So I was on air, and then the lights went out. The power went out in the whole house, and it was snowing outside. So we're like, wow, is the weather knocking out the lights? So I'm on the phone because I can't use my microphone or my computer, and I go downstairs. And you and me are standing downstairs. You're lighting candles. And I open up the picture window where they would come. The police would regularly come by, shine their lights into our picture window, and sit there for a minute before pulling out, as you said, slowly. Um, And I looked out the window, and the police were parked right there across the street uh, in front of the empty house. And then they pulled off, and about two minutes later, we saw the house go poosh, with all these flames just shooting out everywhere. And so we called, first of all, it's suspect that the police is parked right in front of the freaking house, right? (laughs) And then (laughs) on a dead end street. On a dead end street. And you called the the fire department, which was literally on the block, on the end of the block, and it took them an hour to come and put that fire out. We took it as a direct message on our life saying that this could have been you. We shut the power off and we put the uh, fire to this building for you to stop what you were doing. Because we were raising some hell in the media. Well, it wasn't the first time. I mean, we have gotten death threats. We have gotten warnings. Our kids have gotten texts in their phones saying we were going to be killed. So. Yes. And then remember Missouri. Uh, when we went out to Missouri oh, Lord, after the Missouri. Mike Brown incident, we were 
I was receiving a human rights award from Missouri Cure, and um, there was a big event with a representative will be there, a few other people, speakers. And I got a letter, anonymous letter, that said they were from the police to PBA, and that if we came down there talking that anti-cop stuff, we'd be going home in a box. That's yeah. the type of environment that we were dealing with. And it, not just because we were activists, but because it was mainly because we were black activists. It's even more scary when you get someone that walks up to you from the crowd after hearing you speak, and they tell you, you know, maybe you need to get protection. <laughs> that happens, yeah. Because there's been chatter. You have a file this thick. There's been chatter. Yep, that definitely happened. And uh, they told me that they would provide body armor for me as well as somebody to monitor the crowds for me for free uh, because they thought what I was doing was very important. They were afraid that it would be a threat to my life. Um, But, you know, we let, we have, we don't have the type of money to have that thing, those things go on. So we depend on God to take care of us. And today he has done so, but it's not limited to us. And in addition to that, America, or as I call it, America, because they don't deserve an A, it deserves an F. Uh, America is now trying to rewrite history completely to make itself into yep. some kind of a victim slash champion of abolition. We saw Candace Owens come out talking about how America was the first ones to abolish slavery, which was an absolute lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were like the eighth one, and they forgot all about it, the Haitian Revolution conveniently. But this is the type of narratives that we've been hearing. So I got yeah. another clip I want to play, Travel. And I can't get this man's name, no matter what I, I've been trying. I've been looking all over for this <laughs> man's name. It comes from a uh, uh, TikTok and a Graham page called Middle Nation. And they've been playing a lot of this brother's uh, talks over the past few weeks. And at one point, he was addressing America directly. And I want to play that. And you'll hear in the background uh, a beat by Mickey Montz called Murder. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas. And my guest and co-host today is Travel Rain, a.k.a. the two of us, Maximum Impact Poetry. We'll be right back after this. Abolition Abolition. Today. No, you don't get to say that, you know, it didn't used to be that way. That somehow your society, your civilization got hijacked. No. You weren't invaded, you weren't colonized, you weren't occupied. Outsiders did not come in and take over your countries and sabotage them and, uh, you know, install a tyrannical system. That's what you did to others. Nobody did that to you. You don't get to, you know, explain away the failures of your society in the same way that uh, countries do that were colonized and deliberately destabilized and deindustrialized and sabotaged by you. You don't get to do that. You did all that to them. Nobody did that to you. You made your societies what they are. You don't get to be the dominant power in the world for centuries uh, and then act like someone else is responsible for the abysmal state of moral values and intellectual development in your societies. This is what your civilization is what it always has been. It has become what it was always becoming. And 
what it only ever could become. It is a vicious, classist, materialistic, selfish, ruthless civilization that cloaks itself in platitudes and moral rhetoric. It's like a rapist whispering poetry into the ear of the victim during the act. So yes, I don't have anything against you. I see most of you as victims. But don't tell me that the rapist is actually a poet. And you need to stop telling yourself that. Economically, your societies have uh, just gone from one form of feudalism to another. The masses are held in contempt, and the only value that's upheld in the society is monetary value. That's why democracy does not extend to the private sector, nor any other values or principles that you espouse. The area of life in which you agree, all agree, to suspend your values and principles, that's the area where you demonstrate what you actually believe. People allow themselves, they give themselves permission to do anything and everything for the greater good of shareholder value. That's your supreme good in your society. That's the supreme good in your society. You have this compartmentalizing philosophy that business is business. It's a morality-free zone. And this philosophy uh, has led to the creation of a parallel power structure in the West. A power structure uh, unconstrained by morality. And like I said, uh, business is sacrosanct. It's untouchable. That lets you know what your civilization actually prioritizes and values. From the beginning, you had this compartmentalization. You have uh, the hand of the government, and you have the, uh, the invisible hand of the market, as Adam Smith said. And you ensured that the hand of the government should never interfere with what the hand of the market is doing. But you did not ensure that the hand of the market would not interfere with what the hand of the government is doing. And the invisible hand of the market has become an invisible iron fist and it's squeezing the life out of you. The invisible hand of the market is around your throat. And like I said, your civilization approved of this from the beginning. So yes, I sympathize. I sympathize with people in the West. It's a very terrible thing that's happening to them. And that has been happening to them. At a very deep level, it's a terrible thing. Your society has betrayed you. Your civilization has betrayed you. Your civilization has lied to you. Your civilization has sabotaged you. Your civilization has crippled you. Uh, I sympathize with all of that. And like I said, I see most of you as victims of your own civilization. But what I don't sympathize with is anyone telling me that this is not the case. Because like I said before, everyone can see it but you. Abolition. 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 Welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. That was from Middle Nation with a Muslim speaker addressing America. Um, before I get into uh, Bring Tribal Reign, I just want to bring out a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. on August 14th in 1958 at the Galilee Baptist Church. He said, the white man isn't defending what he thinks is morally right. He's defending what he thinks is economically profitable. Even Martin saw that clear as day. Travel Rain? Business 
is sacrosanct. Think about that for a minute. Business sacrosanct. And America has made slavery a business. That's right. And it's too big to fail. Going to go down willingly. But we have to continue to fight to achieve our freedom by any means necessary. By any means necessary. You know, again, these are truth bombs and mic drop moments, and that was certainly both. Um, making yeah. it very clear about where we're at and, and what America is about and how they conveniently suspend their values and principles for business. And as you said, slavery is a big business. If you bring in all of the resources that are generated on an annual basis, it's nearing a trillion dollars a year. And you include the cost from the families, the exploitations and the tickets and fees, the court costs, the imprisonments, the probation, the paroles, all of that including the satellite corporations that wouldn't exist without slavery, like the places that supply the goods and services and technology inside the prisons. Um, You know, that's nearly a trillion dollars a year. That's too big to fail in that category as far as they're concerned. We've already seen the type of arguments they come up with, like in Louisiana, where they refuse to give up on involuntary servitude where they're sentencing Mm -hmm. people um, as one of the only two states in the country, Arkansas and Louisiana are sentencing people to hard labor and have been doing that for decades. And now they're Um, trying to outright lie and say that slavery was beneficial (laughs) to the slaves. Well, you know, last time we were on air here, I gave an analogy, um, and I'll repeat it too. They wouldn't dare say that to the victims portrayed in the film, Sounds of Freedom. So, you know, you got these Mm -hmm. children in there who are being trafficked. They wouldn't say that about them, but they'll say that about us. You wouldn't say that, you know, this little kid learned how to do this thing while being trafficked uh, human trafficked and sexually exploited as virtually a slave mm-hmm. and then when they grew up and they finally got free they used those same skills to enhance their lives to be have a better life that would be shameful for you to say out loud and yet yeah. you say it about black people all the time and you know all it's not time. that hard to see the differences between the people who are pro-slavery and those who are um, anti-slavery. And as a matter of fact, you got a poem about it that was inspired by me, don't inspired you? Inspired by me. Yes, I do. Uh, you want to tell uh, them about it and do the poem, maybe? <laughs> I will do the poem for you. All right. And then if they have any questions after, I'll answer questions. How about Ladies that? and gentlemen, this is the spoken word icon, Tribal Rain, doing as per Max Barthes. As for Max Parthas, truth happens when you look into the actual faces of the oppressed and the oppressor. You can't hide or deny what you see. One must always be the lesser and one the overt aggressor. See, being hunted is always a bitch for the prey. 
having to eke out a plan of survival while continuously looking over your shoulder, wondering what, or should I say who, will be snatched up next? How many will be hurt or killed? Come on, people, we all know the drill. We all grew up in the valley in the shadow of truth. How many pints of blood will they exact as payment for our imagined sins? It's as if being born black were an option on our preconscious opinions held sway. When only the Almighty had an opinion that day, so suck it up, buttercup. We were born this way. And for most of our people, the secret to dealing with the oppression is to deny its existence. As if we can afford the luxury of entertaining conscious dissidents. Deliberately agreeing to ignore the acts of violence that have continued to plague our people since slavery began. Consciously standing by watching as our people are being decimated by genocide. Desiccated by pride. When the sad fact of the matter is, we are all unwilling witnesses dragged along for the ride. Pulling out our cameras and recorders in order to chronicle the view. Sheepishly bowing our heads when asked, well, what did you do to help in the struggle? And as usual, most of us can only reply that we're out here trying to make a living. Hell, we're trying not to die. See, truth happens when you look into the actual faces of the oppressed and the oppressor. You can't hide or deny what you see. Are you the aggressor or the lesser? When you look in the mirror, are you facing the truth or are you existing in their lives? Which character trait would I see were I to look in your eyes? See, the sad fact of the matter is if you're not going to stand up and act, then get the fuck out the way and let those of us who are consciously aware that slavery is still here and that the overseers are still roaming America's hunting grounds, stand up and fight. Not just for our rights, but for your rights too, even though you're doing all you can do to label us troublemakers, rabble-rousers, thugs, and criminal savages just like our oppressors. Too stupid to realize that they're hunting you too. See, any brown or black meat will do as a serving at the master's table where he'll dine on the flesh of the ignorant oppressed just as lustfully as he sucks the marrow from the bones of the conscious few. Come on, people, get a clue. See, in their eyes, black don't matter unless it pertains to slavery or servitude. How much money are you worth in their pockets? What role will you play in their prison industrial court? The I won't go down without a fight victim or a willing cohort. Make a fucking choice. Because at the end of the day, it all boils down to this. Truth happens when you look into the actual faces of the oppressed and the oppressor. You can't hide or deny what you see. And here in America's hunting grounds, they're still hunting people like me. So what are you going to do to stop it? Tribal rain. <laughs> Tribal rain. I feel like saying fam, 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 like they did way back in the day. <laughs> you do that and I'll talk about you. <laughs> uh, what I'm talking about is, you know, Tribal and I are the parents of the first black family in the history of hip-hop music, uh, brothers and sisters. And I remember, well, we were remembering one day when we were at the festival and the kids were performing. And at first... They're like, who is these people? We don't know that, blah, 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 blah. But no sooner than they were done with one song, it was bam, bam, bam. 
everywhere you went. <laughs> that was a powerful presentation. Um, thank you very much for that, Travel Rain. I believe it was one day um, I had said that truth happens when you look into the actual faces of the oppressor and oppressor. And when I said that, it sparked a poem in your head. What I was talking about was like recently in Ohio, a black man was uh, attacked by police dogs where the policeman who set him on the black man has since been fired, but nonetheless, it happened. And if you were there at that moment and you would look at each of their faces, you would know who was who without having to ask mm-hmm. anybody any questions. The same thing with all these dog attacks in the prisons across Virginia and other 11 states that have dogs in the prisons. If you look in their faces, you know what's happening. Any encounter with the police and black people, it's easy to know who is the oppressed and who is the oppressor. Yes. And they act like it. Definitely. act like it. So... Yeah, um, Ohio and Virginia. And, you know, Virginia, I recently found out that uh, the 12 states that have dogs in the prisons, which they use to um, torture and terrify the people inside, uh, there was like 280 attacks that happened since 2017. And over 200 of them happened in Virginia alone, in Virginia alone. And I did did some more digging to find out that this was all put into place into these facilities by the same people who brought dogs to Abu Ghraib. Uh, remember Abu Ghraib over in Iraq where the uh, military was holding these alleged insurgents and they had all these pictures of the dogs that were sicking on them, how they were making them lay naked in the middle of the floor and pile them uh, in bodies on top of each other standing with the dogs. The same mm. people who brought that to Iraq is the ones that brought this to mm. the prisons mm. with the dogs inside doing the same exact thing used as a form of torture, as a form of terrorism. And dogs and slave catchers go together like peanut butter and jelly. They have been a part of the oppression and the terrorism since the antebellum periods. Tribal? Yes. And it's it's, it's amazing how you said that because as you were talking in my head I was thinking and Hillary Clinton calls us savages calls us savages mm-hmm. uh, with super I mean, predators really. who need to be brought to heel savages uh, it was yeah. actually um, President Joe Biden who said I don't want my children to grow up in a racial what did he call it a racial jungle I don't want my children to grow up in a racial jungle, is what he said when he was advocating for his crime bill. Um, And then holding out that little crack rock that was worth 100 to 1 versus cocaine, talking about how dangerous it was. And just that little piece of crack right there is so much poison. And if you get caught with it, you should go to prison for 25 years, life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll have everything destroyed, your businesses, your homes, just torn down, blah, 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 while his own son was a crackhead. At the same Thank time you. that his son was a crackhead, he was talking about how we need to be buried in a prison uh, for for crack, which was being sentenced at 100 to 1, the mm-hmm. same exact drug. Mm-hmm. So powder cocaine, you get caught with a gram, and you get 
maybe a year or probation, but you get caught with a gram of crack cocaine, you're getting life in prison. Plus. Yes. And yes. the reason for that is because crack was predominantly in black communities. And how did the crack get in the black community? That itself is a big story that everybody should look up. Where did crack cocaine mm-hmm. come from? Ollie North, Ronald Reagan, uh, Sandinistas, all of these different mm-hmm. secret wars that was being funded through our deaths and our imprisonment and the addictions and the horrors that was happening to black communities across America, um, out in Los Angeles. And we were some of the earliest ones to get it in Newark and Patterson. When it hit us, yes. it hit like a ton of bricks, boy, and destroyed entire communities Man. that had never recovered. Never recovered. Still we, remember watching people walk along the side of the road, looking at the ground, shaking and anxious, hoping they'd find something. Hoping they'd find something. You know, I also think I remember that poem that you did was the same. Wasn't that the same poem you did for the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March? Yes, it is. Yeah, yes, it is. It, it, matter of fact, it was. Yep. Uh, we're coming up on the anniversary of that, August 19th. It will be the anniversary of the 2017 Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March, which was supported right. with rallies. It was supported with rallies, I think, in 16 states. And the main uh, march was in D.C. at Freedom Plaza, right oh, across the street from the White House. Uh, at that time, you were uh, one of the featured artists to perform. Uh, I was one of the keynote speakers, along with Ramona Africa. Mumia uh, called in from prison uh, on the loudspeaker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and Brother Robert yeah. King, one of the Angola Three. As a matter of fact, um, we, we, we met Albert Woodfox there. God rest his soul. Yes, right? he did. Uh, Albert yes, Woodfox did. there. He had just been freed. Uh, recently from being one of the longest, uh, one of the people to spend the most time in solitary confinement in the history of the United States, uh, like 40 years in solitary confinement. Um, and yeah. that was a magical moment. As a matter of fact, that was where I gave the speech of my life. <laughs> you know, I, I was so worried. Yeah, I remember you know? that speech. <laughs> right. I was so Your worried speech. about it. <laughs> Uh, I had just I had written a speech for somebody in Alabama already, uh, one of the places that was doing the same thing in support. And I, I was supposed to write one for myself, and Tribal was like, you know, t- tell him what you told me, Tribal. I told him just speak from his heart. Just do what he do, and the message will be passed along. She, yeah, she said, you know, everything you need to know is already in your head. And the ancestors are behind you. (laughs) So don't stress. Just get up there and speak from the heart. So that's exactly what I did. And for me, that was my mic mic drop moment. Um, What I would like to do is share that speech so you guys could hear it too. Um, This was where we had thousands of people gathered for the first time as slavery abolitionists uh, the largest gathering of slavery abolitionists since the antebellum period. The day before, we many of us had met the leaders of slavery abolition across the country, had met in a historic oh, black yeah. church right down the street from Frederick Douglass's house. 
Uh, it, yes. was, it was just magical. And when we finally got to me, I'm going to go ahead and give you what I had to say. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's worth it. And hang on in there with us. Uh, you're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. Uh, keep Brother Yusuf Hassan in your prayers and his family. Um, you'll be listening to me, Max Parthas, on Max August Parthas. 19th, the speech I gave in Washington, D.C. at the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Rally. I think this was a catalyst moment because very next year, um, Colorado became the first state to abolish slavery. We'll be yeah. right back after this. Abolition. 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 We asked, or the organizers asked the people here today as representatives to speak a little bit about the 13th Amendment. Some of them got up here and told us how none of this is going to work. Some of them got up here and told us how we were just having a march, and when we finish with this march, we got to continue doing the work like this ain't important right here, right now, today. Some of them got up here and told us we were wasting our time. I'm not feeling that at all. Let me tell you what's going on here today. This is the largest gathering of slavery abolitionists in the history of the United States happening right here today. In 16 cities across America, they are marching in unison with us and in solidarity with us. And they're not doing it to end mass incarceration. They're doing it to end what? Slavery. See, I don't know what the hell slavery is apparently these days. I just pointed out to you how it works. Well, how did it come into play? The 13th Amendment Exception Clause traces all the way back to 1777 Vermont. It's in their constitution right now where they say that slavery shall be abolished in the state of Vermont except for prisoners duly convicted or in case of death or the like. What the hell is the like? Like you could be a slave for being a like in the state of Vermont. They were the first ones to put it out. From Vermont in 1777, it went on with Alabama. From Alabama, it went in Ohio. Those three, three states adopted what was the predecessor of the 13th Amendment. By 1865, it had gotten to Abraham Lincoln. Do y'all know Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer? Do you trust lawyers? Come on now. Abraham was a, uh, Lincoln was a lawyer. He was in the middle of a civil war that it was impending at one point, and then it actually happened. He was looking for a way to solve the problem between the North and the South. In a letter to Justice Stevens in 1862, I believe, he said clearly to him what the difference between the North and the South was. When he told Justice Stevens, you in the South think that slavery is a right that should be allowed to all. And us in the North think that it should be restricted. That is the only difference between us. Now, what did he mean by restricted? He was talking about convict leasing. He was talking about what occurred in 1865 when the North won the war and they put convict leasing into effect immediately. Where I come from, in South Carolina, they built that first prison there in 1866 and are proudly bragging about it. Within two years, many of these prisons across the South went from 90% white to guess what? 90% black. The people who were supposedly freed were immediately re-arrested under black codes and pig laws and put right back in those damn cells where they were leased out to the railroad box, yeah. leased out to the uh, coal factory, leased out to the plantations where they were just slaves at. 
Yeah. And this was happening after the so-called emancipation. Yeah. After the 13th Amendment, this went on. It went on all the way to 1928 in Alabama. In Alabama in 1928, there was a cave-in. A cave-in that took the lives of 128 black men, women, and children. They were being leased out to this mine, to work in this mine for free. Many of them picked up because they didn't have money in their pocket and went to somebody else's town. Because they looked at a white woman wrong. Because they spit on the ground. Because they were fucking black. Yeah. As simple as that. And then they leased these men and women out to these companies and built what you call America right now. Yeah. Now, if that's not slavery, I don't know what the hell is. See, the difference is, prior to 1865, the individual, as the letter proclaimed, could own people. After 1865, the transfer of ownership of your behind went from the individual to the state-owned yeah. people. And they kept those people in those cages because taxpayers would pay for the upkeep. There's a book by the name of One Dies, Get Another by J. Mancini. And in that book, it's titled uh, One Dies, Get Another, J. Mancini, Prison Leasing in the United States, 1866 to 1928. In that book, he says, the only difference between slavery and convict leasing was with criminals so plentiful they were seen as disposable. Yeah. They didn't have any care or taking care of them anymore. And this wasn't before 1865. This was after 1865. So I'm telling you that went on to 1928. And the way they do things here is they transform slavery. They always transform it into something else and call it another name. And people get up here and start talking about how slavery is mass incarceration. How slavery is justice for sale. How slavery is over-policing. How slavery is injustice in the courts. Racism. I don't give a damn about no racism. I give a damn about slavery. Without slavery, those races wouldn't have a damn power. They wouldn't have the power they have right now. They wouldn't have it. They couldn't do anything to you. But for right now, those men can come over here and put a gun in my face and put me in a jail cell any damn time they feel like it. And they represent white supremacy. The next stage of slavery was Unicorn. Unicorn is one company. Anybody here familiar with Unicorn? Yeah. It's a billion dollar a year business that was established in 1936 as a replacement after convict leasing. All they provide is prison labor. They have 109 factories making 170 some odd products with the factories are built into the prison. You hear what I'm telling you? Built into the damn prison. A billion dollar a year uh, service. Now, in the 80s, uh, well, actually, let's go to the 70s. I want to do it real quick. In the 70s, we know Nixon, uh, everybody knows he was a racist. Is anybody confused by Nixon being a racist? All right. In the 70s, this racist president started what was called the War on Drugs, right before he resigned, right? And we know today that Nixon admitted that he was doing it to target blacks and anti-war protesters. He said, basically, you know, we can't physically target them and get away with it, but we can associate the blacks with heroin and the war protesters with marijuana, and then we can go in and tear their communities apart. And they did that 
and the first of what we call mass incarceration started to come up. The next stage was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan came in and said, you know what? This whole thing about people being, not being able to own people anymore sucks. I want to change that. So he invited a private prison to build a facility in Louisiana, a women's prison. For the first time since 1865, the average person could now go online or go to their stockbroker and buy stocks in prison. When you buy stocks in prison, do you think you're buying prison? Do you think you're buying a room? Do you think you're buying the blankets? You are buying the people. You are putting your money, your investment, into the fact that those prisons will be filled all the damn time. And it's not just filled to 100%. In Alabama right now, where they are also protesting in solidarity, it's at 200% capacity right now. 200%. We have instances in our history recently that should be worldwide scandals, but nobody's talking about it. Have you ever heard of the Kids for Cash scandal? Yeah. Kids for Cash, right? What was happening was in Pennsylvania, two judges were working with a private for-profit prison by the name of Merkel. Merkel was the developer. The two judges were working an assembly line of human trafficking and slavery where they had incarcerated nearly 5,000 children for pay. Merkel was giving these judges money to send these, these children to their prisons. The judges was earning millions. Merkel made nearly a billion dollars. The, the way it ended was the judges got 28 years in prison and the company got fined $80 million. Now, if you made a billion dollars, and you got fined $80 million, do you feel like it was a bad day? No! So for selling children, they didn't get no time. The Supreme Court had to overturn all of those convictions. Some of these children were in there for something as little as throwing a piece of steak at their stepfather, writing on their desk, or making fun of their vice principal. They weren't given trials. They weren't given representation. They were simply ushered right into a prison for a kickback. And this prison had a beautiful name. It was called Pennsylvania Child Care. Look it up. Makes it sound so great, right? Like you want to send your kids there to be babysitting. And it was a damn prison for children. That's just one example. The other example would be what my brother talked about earlier, which was in Massachusetts with Annie Dukin. You have a crime lab technician. Her name is Annie Dugan, and what she was doing was falsifying drug reports on as many as 60,000 people. Now, why would a crime lab a, a technician want to falsify drug reports? Because there's 14 states in the United States of America that provide incentive to lab technicians in the form of monetary kickbacks for every positive result. This woman affected 60,000 lives. Many of them are in prison right now still for violation of parole, things like that, because of these false drug reports. She did 18 months in prison. She's walking free now. The Department of Justice has decided they're not even going to check to see who she affected anymore because it would take too much work. Think about that. How the hell are we doing, dealing with that in this country? That's slavery and human trafficking. 
And when I say human trafficking, I'm not talking about the illegal type. We're not talking about the illegal slavery here. We're talking about legal slavery, legal human trafficking. Right now in Arizona, there's a prison at a place called Eloy. At that prison, they only house Hawaiians in Arizona. So if you do a crime in Hawaii, they will send you to this private prison in Arizona. Now, how the hell are your family members going to visit you? They can't. And why are you in Arizona to begin with? You didn't commit a crime in Arizona, but because these private prisons are connected all across the country, they think that they can just take your body and send it wherever they have a contract that needs to be filled. That's human trafficking. We have laws against that. See, you can't abolish mass incarceration. Mass incarceration is the result of something. It's not the source. The shit didn't even exist until 2009. In 2007, at the launch of Twitter, between 2007 and 9, there were only four mentions of mass incarceration. It didn't become a thing until 2009. But here we are in 2017 when everybody's talking about mass incarceration like the shit is real. I bet you that our ancestors who are blessing my words right now in 1850 did not think that those cops out there hunting them under the Fugitive Slave Law Act were doing mass incarceration. They knew exactly what they were dealing with, and that's our problem right here today. We call it everything but slavery. You need to change your mind about what you're dealing with. This brother will say it's mass incarceration. He'll say it's over-policing. She'll say it's policing for profit. He'll say over there that it's injustice and racism in the courts. But it's all of that under one umbrella. The same umbrella we have always fought and never beat. And that is called what? Slavery. What are we here to answer? Slavery. What are we trying to fight? Slavery. You see where I'm coming from, right? When I marched here today, and I marched here with everybody, right? They had these dudes and women run around with these signs said abolish mass incarceration. Where the hell are they now? You came in here, confused the fuck out of people, and then left. We're not fighting. You can't abolish mass incarceration. It's not a thing to abolish. There are laws in our Constitution that protect us from slavery. There are laws in the human rights documents that protect us from slavery. But we need to start calling it slavery. If you're calling it something else, you're not fighting slavery. Let me show you something that's going on in this human rights declaration. I tell you, this pisses me off when I see this. This is what happens when you let people who don't know your experience determine what the answer to your problem is. In the Declaration of Human Rights, uh, human rights abbreviated, slavery is number four. Number four. I'm sure you didn't ask those slaves which what was important to them to make it number four. I'm sure you didn't ask anybody who was affected by it to make it number four. See, the first one is the right to equality. How are you going to have a right to equality if you didn't abolish slavery? Like, does that make any damn sense? What's the next one? The next one is freedom from discrimination. How are you going to have freedom from discrimination before you end slavery? That's what I'm thinking about that. Y'all need to get your mind right. You need to understand what you're dealing with. The most important thing you can do today, those listening now, those listening across the world, 
The pigs over there listening right now. The asshats in that house over there listening right now is to change your mind about what you're dealing with. Because you cannot reform slavery. Slavery is a crime against humanity. You don't reform it. So if you get up here and tell us to reform slavery, you're confused, brother. You're confused, sister, because you can't fix that. What do you do when you're faced with a crime against humanity that has been legalized? Say it one more time. That's what I'm talking about. I want to show you some things. Okay. I think I put my point across. Have I put my point across? I want to remember these people. Lawrence Myers, who died in 1995. 16-year-old boy shot in the back of the head by police. He's the reason I'm here today. I swore to his mother I would never forget his name, and I have not. And I will keep it alive until he gets justice. Corinne Gaines, police barged into a house, shot her in her house, and then shot her five-year-old son. I want to remember her. And Kajami Powell, who on this day, in 2014, right after the Mike Brown incident, was murdered by St. Louis police, or Missouri police. He went into a store with a uh, witness in tow, handed him a camera, and said, record all of this. He went to the store, he took out two bottles of juice from the counter, went right outside, the owner said, hey, what's going on? And called the cops. He put the two bottles on the floor, he sat down and waited. The cops showed up within minutes, and within seconds, he was freaking dead. Over a couple of juices. And he did that and made this witness record it so you could know that your lives don't mean nothing to them. They will kill you so quick for nothing at all. And the reason they do that is because they still have slave catcher mentality. They're still acting like slave catchers. They're still filling quotas. We have New York Police Department officers who have come on national television to tell us that this is the case. So here's what you can do for me today in my last minute. Change your mind. Stop calling it the things that it is not. It's not mass incarceration. It's not all those things I mentioned before. What is it? Slavery. What do we want to hand? Slavery. What are we fighting? Slavery. We're not fighting mass incarceration, right? No. We're not fighting injustice in the courts, right? No. We're fighting slavery. And the way to end that is to take that exception clause out of the 13th Amendment, which makes it legal. And then you can incorporate laws and legislation like the Justice Is Not For Sale Act of 2015, which banned private prisons from the United States, which ended the uh, 34,000 guaranteed quota in the immigration centers. I want to say one more time, thank you. On behalf of my family and everybody who came here to see us today, thank you for being here. Please share this information with somebody else and do what you can in modern day slavery and human trafficking. Thank you, Crystal. Thank you to the IMW Prison Advocacy Network and all the people who made this happen today because the only way this is going to change is if you change it. Thank you, Matt. Y'all give him another round of applause. Abolition. 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 Welcome back to Abolition Today. Abolitiontoday.org. You just heard truly Max Parthas at the August 19th Millions for Prisoner Human Rights Rally in 2017 in Washington, D.C., and Freedom Plaza. Travel Rain? That that speech just takes me back to that 
time and that feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, it really does. I mean, those were powerful, powerful days. It was hot. We marched. We all got together. Everybody got the message. Wow. I wasn't pulling no punches either, you know? No, no, you were close smacking left and right. Left and right. And, you know, for the people who wanted to come up there and act a fool, I had some words for them too, you know what I mean? Like, at that time, a lot of people didn't get it. But after that day, a lot of people got it. You know what I mean? They like they start to understand no what we've been talking about. It. And it was definitely a catalyst moment for the movement, uh, the Millions of Prisoners Human Rights March. Uh, we helped organize two dozen prisons that went on strike in solidarity yeah. with the movement that we were doing, including in uh, Nova Scotia. Two dozen prisons. Beautiful. Yeah, it is amazing. There were reports coming in from all over the country. And then a year later, uh, after failing the first time, Colorado became the first state to abolish slavery in their state constitution without a caveat. And, you know, I mentioned some states in that uh, speech, and I'm happy to say that since then, not only Colorado, but Vermont removed their exception clauses as well. So did Utah, Nebraska, Alabama removed their exception clause. Tennessee took theirs yes, out. And yes. Oregon Alabama, took man. theirs out. And yeah, Tennessee and yeah, Alabama. Tennessee. <laughs> you know, so it was it a catalyst moment? The proof is in the pudding, I would say, uh, because we started getting things done after that, for sure. Um, there was a couple of parts of the speech that I wanted to share yeah. with people the details about it. One, you know, when we was talking about I was talking about the letter between uh, Abraham Lincoln and Justice Stevens, right? Uh, Alexander Stevens. That was on December 22nd, 1860. It was after the 1860 election, and Lincoln wrote a letter to the future Confederate Vice President, Alexander Stevens, concerning the South's fears of his presidency threatening slavery. I want to read it for you in its entirety. Tell me what you think afterwards, Tribal, all right? All right. My. He said, my dear sir, your obliging answer to my short note is just received, and for which please accept my thanks. I fully appreciate the present peril the country is in and the weight of responsibility on me. People of the South really entertain fears that a Republican administration would directly or indirectly interfere with their slaves or with them about their slaves. If they do, I wish to assure you, as once a friend, and still I hope not an enemy, that there is no cause for such fears. The South would be in no more danger in this respect than it was in the days of Washington. I suppose, however, this does not meet the case. You think slavery is right and ought to be extended, while we think it's wrong and ought to be restricted. That, I suppose, is the rub. It certainly is the only substantial difference between us. Yours truly, Abraham Lincoln. Trouble? The letter right there shows you that he was not talking about emancipation. It really does. I mean, he was talking about restriction. Right, using the prison system. Yes. Mm -hmm. So... 
I mean, for most people who still stand up and go, oh, Abraham Lincoln emancipated us. Abraham Lincoln is this. Abraham Lincoln is that. That letter right there shows you exactly who he was. Yes, without a doubt. And what he was about, uh, explaining this to the future vice president of the Confederacy, that you ain't got to worry about us. <laughs> you, no more than Washington had to worry about it. And, you know, Washington had slaves. So did his wife, Martha. Martha had more slaves than Washington did. As a matter of fact, it was a dowry that she had, uh, all of those slaves. And then the difference is where he pointed out, you want it to be, you think it's right, just like they think it's right now. And it ought to be extended as it has been extended across the globe. And then he said, we think it's wrong and it ought to be restricted. He didn't say abolished. He said restricted. And, and when he said that, it was with the working knowledge that the exception clause would be applied to prison labor through convict leasing, which had been adopted already as far back as 1777 in Vermont and put into practice across other states throughout the country successfully. Tribal? You might be on mute, Tribal. Oh, you are on mute. There you go. How did that happen? Did you call I'm that so in? I'm sorry. <laughs> We're having a storm here, and my phone just completely said, <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I'll go ahead and talk about the next part then, and you could chime in on that. The other part I talked about was Nixon, and this is something that's supposed to be common knowledge now, but apparently it's not, that uh, one of Nixon's top advisors, uh, Ehrlichman, uh, came out and told the truth to Harper's Magazine, um, and he said that the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, enemies the anti-war left, and black people. The uh, Ehrlichman said that, you understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black people. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. He said we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Like, really? And we're still using yep. the same war on drugs started by this man, this disgraced president. The same one. <laughs> and we're still killing people with it and still robbing bodies like man thieves. Tribal? In fact, wasn't there uh, audio? Uh, he had someone had taped it, that exact same conversation, uh, and you can Nixon hear it tapes. from his own lips. Yes, yes. There was a lot that was exposed in the Nixon tapes and just how racist he was. I remember in yep. his defense of Roe versus Wade, he says, "I think that the people in Michigan." will vote in favor of it because it will be the little black bastards being aborted. That's what yes. Nixon was saying on yes. tape to his uh, aides in on the White tape. House. Things like that and worse. Um, when he and was yet asked still about have folks in denial. In denial. Um, that it was you know, a planned scheme all along. 
Now a lot of part, people, when they argue in favor of Roe, they talk about the rapes and the incest. But back in 71, when he was addressed with that, that wasn't the top of his list on the Nixon tapes. Uh, they asked him about it, and he says, I think that uh, abortion is right to do when you have a black and a white. Now, what does that mean when you have a black and a white? Mm-hmm. He's saying all mixed children should be aborted. <laughs> like, they don't deserve to it's live. And, black. And, then, and then one of his aides said, and in rape. He says, oh, yeah, and in rape. It was an afterthought. But the first thing on his mind was to kill mixed children. Like, that's an abomination. You should not have that. Now, you know you can't mix your pure white blood with our nice, dark melanin skin. Yeah, the hate is so deep that it's genocidal, as you said earlier, Tribal Rain. It's just genocidal. Um, We got about 15 more minutes. About almost 15 more minutes And I got one more track I want to share Tonight um, I also got an amazing Bridging the gap schedule for us I'll explain what it is a little bit later on But let's dig back into some memories Travel Rain um, You pick okay. one uh, Share a memory with uh, the audience Regarding this fight over the years Oh wow One of the Most proudest moment I was of you was after the Charleston 9 happened Mm -hmm. and we were gathered in the church in Charleston (laughs) and I forget what the reporter's name was but they were deliberately trying to ignore you and Muhadeen but when finally somebody had gave you the mic and you straightforwardly said what it was. Muhadeen jumped up and said, <laughs> Slavery! <laughs> <laughs> Slavery, and yeah. The whole role, I think it was uh, our daughter Danielle was with us. She had one of the children, Yusef Hassan, and we were all like, Yeah! I think it was Montana in a carriage, right? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And then when they finally came out with the 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 newscast program, they had admitted some of that part. All of it, actually. From the public's eyes. Yes. Yep. They edited me completely out. It was the America After Ferguson special that was done by, I think it was NPR. Um, and the person that ran it, she since passed away. It was a black journalist. I can't think of her name at this moment. Uh, and Muyadin as well has since passed away. He was murdered yeah, in New yeah. Orleans not long after exposing the Clintons on national television for their involvement in modern-day slavery and human yeah. trafficking. Um, man, that, so many that losses. That was a big loss. Yeah, uh, that was a, a powerful day. You're right. Um, I was up all night long. <laughs> I've been up all night long. So I get to the place. I'm already burned out. Everybody wants to talk to me, you know what I mean? Because we've already been making some hella ways. And we're doing interviews, me and Muyadeen. And they had Muyadeen as a, uh, one of the special guest speakers, right? At least he was scheduled to, to be a special yeah. guest speaker. But at the last minute, they found a new Negro. 
<laughs> which is literally what yes, happened. Someone who so would go he, along with the program. Right. He was the but leader. But what got me was you actually walked up. Well, I'll let you tell the story when you walked up to the policeman. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I walked up to the policeman. <laughs> that was funny. There was a rash of people getting arrested just for talking, you know what I mean, interrupting something or whatever, and it still happens. And I told the policeman, I said, look, I'm going to drop the bomb on them uh, in what I'm about to say. You going to have any problem with that? <laughs> He's like, nah, bro, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And he backed up slowly out the door and then pulled out his camera. <laughs> Through the glass in the door, so he could videotape it. <laughs> it was funny, he politely man. walked out of the room and mm. videotaped. Um, yeah, I, I was exhausted, so I'm standing there this whole time with this green or orange ticket in my hand as a speaker. I was number seven or something like that, and I just kept holding yeah, it up for yeah. about an hour and a half, two hours, <laughs> and then finally well, I couldn't take you. it anymore. Yeah, I just couldn't take it anymore. And that's when me and William Dean really laid down the law. Um, William Dean explained to them, he said, look around you. Who in here represents the city of Charleston? These are all white faces. We're not talking yes, about was. you. <laughs> you know? Uh, it was, and it was all silly. white faces that were talking. Right. That and they all, were giving uh, the opportunity to speak. Mm-hmm. The uh, governor's wife came up. And this was my catalyst. This is what made me say, what the hell? And start speaking regardless of whether it was my turn or not. Was when the governor's wife sat up there as a guest and explained how poverty in black communities was because of unwed teenage mothers. That's why we were all in poverty. Nothing about the history of slavery, nothing about the convict leasing, nothing about the oppressions and the destruction. And we're talking, we're in South Carolina, where they bred human beings as slaves. When the transatlantic slave trade ended, they started breeding us like freaking cattle in South Carolina. And she had the nerve to get up there and say that. And that just set me off. And I was like, I don't give a damn. And that was when the policeman backed out the door. (laughs) And I just dropped it, man. Um, sometimes I let the I spirit turned almost at you, Seth, when you got the mic and I was like, he about to lay it down. He and lay it down, lay it down, I did. Get ready. I'll uh, find that video so we can share it on Abolition Today uh, so people can see it. It has been a long, rich history yes. that the two of us have had. Uh, we've been all over the country fighting this fight, the good fight consistently for decades providing outlets and resources for um, marginalized voices to be heard and always uh, exposing the truth as we know it to the best of our experience and our understanding. And uh, one of the things we do not do is try to tell a bunch of lies or make stuff up. I learned a long time ago, people don't give a damn about what you think. They don't give a damn about what you feel. They want to know what you know. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and if you lie once, every truth you've ever told has to be questioned. Yep. So, yeah, we've been trying to keep it righteous and real. Um, you know, one of my proudest moments of you, I wanted to jump your bones. <laughs> me? Like, yes, Humi. Remember when we went to Rhode Island and uh, it was oh, a, right after the Mike Brown <laughs> um, murder? We went to Rhode Island, and one of my mentees had organized a rally there with hundreds and hundreds of people. And we marched from downtown Rhode Island in, into, not at, into the police station 
took over the police station, like literally took it over the community. And then I you, remember that. you used a bullhorn, a, a bullhorn, and you were standing in your little sundress looking as hot as you want to be. And you walked up to the biggest, whitest, meanest looking cop you could find. Big boy, dude, about six, six, 300 pounds. You walked up to him, pointed <laughs> the bullhorn in his face and started doing Morning Mothers, the poem. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> amazing, amazing moment. But, yeah, you remember that now, don't you? I remember it now. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's play one more track. Uh, then I'm going to get some final comments from you, Tribal Rain, and then we're going to get into our Bridging the Gap segment, okay? All right. Okay. Um, you're gonna, we're going to play Stephen A. Smith. Um, he's got some words to say about this DeSantis beneficial slavery thing. Uh, and the instrumental behind it is going to be Bad America Slaves. Uh, and that will be followed by P.J. Morton, You Should Be Ashamed. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas, and today we've got Tribal Rain in the house. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. I'm quite disturbed as I sit here, and I'm trying to keep my cool. Ron DeSantis, part of the things that he was pushing for, came to light, and essentially it was about teaching folks that there were benefits that African Americans received while being. And his cabinet, his campaign, and his cabinet, all of y'all should be ashamed of yourselves. For this to even be a subject that's open for debate in the year 2023 is shameful. Nobody is teaching the benefits of slavery. They're simply teaching how you acquired this skill while enslaved that ultimately benefited you later on down the road. Really? Why even try to find a positive out of something so egregious, something so insidious? Where millions of lives were lost, our ancestors jumped into the ocean. Maybe shark-infested waters just to avoid being enslaved. Murders, rape, maiming, torture, all of these things happen. Why are we talking about a subject like that and saying, let's highlight some of the benefits? Why? Why? Why would you do that? Could it be because you're not black and you have no idea of the historical, subliminal, emotional, spiritual, soulful impact it's had on a race of people? Why even bring it up? Why are we talking about this? You should be ashamed that nothing's really changed and it's your ignorance that won't give me a change Because of the color of my skin You won't listen And after all this time You won't change your mind You should be ashamed What more will it take Before you realize your mistake You've got it all wrong And you've been wrong all alone Now look where we are We haven't healed one scar And after all this time You won't change your mind You should be ashamed 
Stephen A. Smith, uh, very emotional about the circumstances that are occurring, followed by P.J. Morton's You Should Be Ashamed. Uh, I want to take a moment to thank Tribal Rain for joining me here tonight. Um, Also, our team with Jeanette and Sean, who are working to get the information out as we speak about them on social media. Uh, And I want to send out my heartfelt prayers and well wishes to Yusuf Hassan, his father Joseph, his mother, his brothers, sisters, yes, and aunts one. and uncles who are going through some terrible times at this uh, point as their father possibly transitions today. Uh, we love you, and uh, we'll see you soon. Tribal, would you like to give any final comments um, before we get into our last segment of Bridging the Gap? Actually, not so much a final comment as a quote by Malcolm X. All right. When a person places the proper value on freedom, there is nothing under the sun that he will not do to acquire that freedom. Whenever you hear a man saying he wants freedom, but in the next breath he's telling you what he won't do to get it, Mm -hmm. he doesn't believe in freedom. People stop falling for the okey-doke. Research... Follow through and educate yourself. Go for your freedom. Yes. Uh, thank you, Tribal Rain. Uh, we want to give a shout-out and thanks to our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. Uh, it's the reason we're here at Abolition Today. It's the reason we've got this name. It's because of Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. Uh, the I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network is the organization that was behind the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March. Same urge. Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice. Uh, The Quakers have rejoined the fight against slavery. The Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, which is the ancestor, Paul Cuffey of Tribal Rain, our guest tonight. Prismatic Dreams, uh, (laughs) giving a F since 1999, (laughs) and Abolish Slavery National Network, the force behind all of the different legislation that's been happening across the country. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube page at youtube.com slash abolition today and our social media pages for all the news information and music you hear on this program. Our bridging the gap tonight on August 3rd, 1857, Frederick Douglass delivered a West India emancipation speech at Canadaqua, New York on the 23rd anniversary of the event. Most of the address was a history of British efforts towards emancipation, as well as a reminder of the crucial role of the West Indian slaves in that own freedom struggle. However, shortly after he began, 
Douglas sounded a foretelling of the coming civil war when he uttered two paragraphs that became the most quoted sentences of all of his public orations. They began with the words, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. You are about to hear the entire speech read by the one and only Ossie Davis. Listen, learn, and enjoy. Until next week, think about abolition today. Peace. Peace. Abolition. 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 If there is no struggle, there is no progress. The general sentiment of mankind is that a man who will not fight for himself when he has the means of doing so is not worth being fought for by others, and this sentiment is just. For a man who does not value freedom for himself will never value it for others or put himself to any inconvenience to gain it for others. Such a man, the world says, may lie down until he has sense to stand up. It is useless and cruel to put a man on his legs if the next moment his head is to be brought against the curbstone. A man of that type will never lay the world under any obligation to him, but will be a moral pauper, a drag on the wheels of society. And if he too be identified with a peculiar variety of the race, he will entail disgrace upon his race as well as upon himself. The world in which we live is very accommodating to all sorts of people. It will cooperate with them in any measure which they propose. It will help those who earnestly help themselves and will hinder those who hinder themselves. It is very polite and never offers its services unasked. Its favors to individuals are measured by an unerring principle in this to wit. Respect those who respect themselves and despise those who despise themselves. It is not within the power of unaided human nature to persevere in pitying a people who are insensible to their own wrongs and indifferent to the attainment of their own rights. The poet was as true to common sense as to poetry when he said, who would be free themselves must strike the blow. When O'Connell, with all Ireland at his back, was supposed to be contending for the just rights and liberties of Ireland, the sympathies of mankind were with him, and even his enemies were compelled to respect his patriotism. Kasuth, fighting for Hungary with his pen long after she had fallen by the sword, commanded the sympathy and support of the liberal world till his own hopes died out. The Turks, while they fought bravely for themselves, and scourged and drove back the invading legions of Russia, shared the admiration of mankind. They were standing up for their own rights against an arrogant and powerful enemy. But as soon as they let out their fighting to the Allies, admiration gave way to content. These are not the maxims and teachings of a cold-hearted world. Christianity itself teaches that a man shall provide for his own house. This covers the whole ground of nations as well as individuals. Nations no more than individuals can innocently be improvident. They should provide for all wants, mental, moral, and religious, and against all evils to which they are liable as nations. In the great struggle now progressing for the freedom and elevation of our people, we should be found at work with all our might resolved that no man or set of men 
shall be more abundant in labors according to the measure of our ability than ourselves. I know, my friends, that in some quarters, the efforts of colored people meet with very little encouragement. We may fight, but we must fight like the sepoys of India under white officers. This class of abolitionists don't like colored celebrations. They don't like colored conventions. They don't like colored anti-slavery fairs for the support of colored newspapers. They don't like any demonstrations whatever in which colored men take a leading part. They talk of the proud Anglo-Saxon blood as flippantly as those who profess to believe in the natural inferiority of the races. Your humble speaker has been branded as an ingrate because he has ventured to stand up on his own right and to plead our common cause as a colored man rather than as a Garrisonian. I hold it to be no part of gratitude to allow our white friends to do all the work while we merely hold their coats. Opposition of the sort now referred to is partisan opposition, and we must not mind it. The white people at large will not largely be influenced by it. They will see and appreciate all honest efforts on our part to improve our condition as a people. Let me give you a word of the philosophy of reform. The whole history of the progress of human liberty shows that all concessions yet made to her august claims have been born of earnest struggle. The conflict has been exciting, agitating, all-absorbing, and for the time being, putting all other tumults to silence. It must do this, or it does nothing. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one. And it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, it never will. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. And these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. In the light of these ideas, Negroes will be hunted at the north and held and flogged at the south so long as they submit to these devilish outrages and make no resistance, either moral or physical. Men may not get all they pay for in this world, but they must certainly pay for all they get. If we ever get free from the oppression and wrong heaped upon us, we must pay for their removal. We must do this by labor, by suffering, by sacrifice, and if needs be, by our lives and the lives of others. Hence, my friends, every mother who, like Margaret Garner, plunges a knife into the bosom of her infant to save it from the hell of our Christian slavery, should be held and honored as a benefactress. Every fugitive from slavery, who, like the noble William Thomas at Wilkes-Barre, prefers to perish in a river made red by his own blood 
to submission to the hellhounds who were hunting and shooting him should be esteemed as a glorious martyr. Worthy to be held in grateful memory by our people. The fugitive Horace at Mechanicsburg, Ohio the other day, who taught the slave catchers from Kentucky that it was safer to arrest white men than to arrest him, did a most excellent service to our cause. Parker and his noble band of 15 at Christiana, who defended themselves from the kidnappers with prayers and pistols, are entitled to the honor of making the first successful resistance to the fugitive slave bill. But for that resistance and the rescue of Jerry and Shadrach, the manhunters would have hunted our hills and valleys here with the same freedom with which they now hunt their own dismal swamps. There was an important lesson in the conduct of that noble crewman in New York the other day, who, supposing that the American Christians were about to enslave him, betook himself to the masthead and with a knife in hand, said he would cut his throat before he would be made a slave. Joseph Sink, on the deck of the Amistad, did that which should make his name dear to us. He bore nature's burning protest against slavery. Madison Washington, who struck down his oppressor on the deck of the Creole, is more worthy to be remembered than the colored man who shot Pitcairn at Bunker Hill. My friends, you'll observe that I have taken a wide range, and you think it about time that I should answer the special objection to this celebration. I think so too. This then is the truth concerning the inauguration of freedom in the British West Indies. Abolition was the act of the British government. The motive which led the government to act, no doubt, was mainly a philanthropic one, entitled to our highest admiration and gratitude. The national religion, the justice and humanity, cried out in thunderous indignation against the foul abomination, and the government yielded to the storm. Nevertheless, a share of the credit of the results falls justly to the slaves themselves. Those slaves, they were rebellious slaves. They bore themselves well. They did not hug their chains, but according to their opportunities, swelled the general protest against oppression. What Wilberforce was endeavoring to win from the British Senate by his magic eloquence the slaves themselves were endeavoring to gain by outbreaks and violence. The combined action of one and the other brought out the final result. While one showed that slavery was wrong, the other showed that it was dangerous as well as wrong. Mr. Wilberforce, peace man though he was and a model of piety, availed himself of this element to strengthen his case before the British Parliament and warned the British government of the danger of continuing slavery in the West Indies. There is no doubt that the fear of the consequences, acting with a sense of the moral evil of slavery, led to its abolition. The spirit of freedom was abroad in the islands. Insurrection for freedom kept the planters in a constant state of alarm and trepidation. A standing army was necessary to keep the slaves in their chains. This state of facts could not be without weight in deciding the question of freedom in these countries. I am aware that the rebellious disposition of the slaves was said to arise out of the discussion which the abolitionists were carrying on at home. 
and it is not necessary to refute this alleged explanation. All that I contend is this, that the slaves of the West Indies did fight for their freedom, and that the fact of their discontent was known in England, and that it assisted in bringing about that state of public opinion which finally resulted in their emancipation. And if this be true, the objection is answered. Again, I am aware that the insurrectionary movements of the slaves were held by many to be prejudicial to their cause. This is said now of such movements at the South. The answer is that abolition followed closely on the heels of insurrection in the West Indies, and Virginia was never nearer emancipation than when General Turner kindled the fires of insurrection at Southampton. Sir, I have now filled more than the measure of my time. I thank you for the patient attention given to what I have had to say. I have aimed, as I said at the beginning, to express a few thoughts having some relation to the great interest of freedom both in this country and in the British West Indies. And I have said all that I meant to say, and the time will not permit me to say more. Abolition. Abolition. If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cop.